So I'm really passionate about people tapping into what they're good at and what their strengths are. Because we spend a lot of time in society, especially in the professional development space, talking about what we're not good at. How can we improve this thing that we're not good at? And I'm not saying that doesn't have a place, but actually, if we spend far more time, far more of that balance, focusing on what we're actually good at and how we can get better at it and how we can use it to our advantage, A, we're happier, B, we have more confidence, and C, we're far more productive, which is why I started doing strengths-based coaching and and, and became accredited in in that space, because I found that um, for myself, when I was able to identify what my strengths are, it really helped me in terms of my career and where I wanted to focus. Because there, there is no point in me saying I'm going to spend all of my time focusing in areas that I'm quite weak at and constantly feeling like I'm weak, which makes my self-esteem dip. Welcome to That's What She Said, the podcast for empowering women. My name is Lucienne Shakir and as a female empowerment specialist, I'm a woman who knows what it's like to lose their mind through a lacking of female sense of self and identity. My aim is to share stories from women around the world to help you see that you are not on your own. If you feel that you are lost in the sea of who am I, these collections of conversations are for you. Sit back and enjoy listening to this phenomenal collective of female voices in That's What She Said. This week on That's What She Said, I have the absolute pleasure of introducing Movel Dash, who is a diversity and inclusion specialist and has been very supportive with me around my education on diversity and inclusion, especially in the last few months where we have been talking together on the new Clubhouse app. Um, It's been a pleasure getting to know her. I consider her a true friend and I thank her from the bottom of my heart for sharing with me this open conversation around race, diversity, what it means to be a woman and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope you do too. And today I'm joined by the beautiful Mavelle Dash, who is business owner, coach, DI consultant, mother, all round glorious human being. Um, I've absolutely loved getting to know Mavelle um, over the last few months and really, really align with a lot of what she's about. And I'm thrilled to invite her on. Mavelle, how are you doing? I am good. I'm good. I'm fresh off a couple of days off spending time with family for the first time in two years. So I'm good. I'm good. Wow. First time in two years. Yeah. We, we talked about questions that we could ask you and one of them was about motherhood. And I was saying how I was a bit loath to ask the question because men don't get asked that question. Um, but we were talking about how necessary it is to actually speak about it because women end up being the care providers and two years, two years of not having a break. Just tell me what that's been like for you. I mean, you know, like everybody else, it's been an adjustment. Um, and the reason I didn't see my sister for two years was because just before lockdown, I hadn't seen her for about six months because I normally go and spend time with her in the summer breaks and stuff, but I was busy. So I didn't get to see her in the summer break because she lives in Manchester. And then of course, lockdown happened and we've been in that for about 18 months. So t- in total, I haven't seen her for about two years. Uh, um, 
it's been difficult not seeing family. It's, you know, but I'm fortunate. My mum lives down the road. My daughter was here with me for the majority of lockdown until she went off to uni. So I actually had the benefit of spending some really good quality time with my daughter. I probably wouldn't have had before she went off to uni because you know what they're like when they're 18, 19. They're all about their friends. And mm. so she would have been out enjoying her summer, summer before she went off to uni. So I got to spend that time with her during lockdown. So it was good. Do you know what? That's something that is actually it's incredibly interesting is that a lot of children have got to spend more time with their parents during the during the pandemic. Um, and that obviously has its benefits. It also has its cons. And for you, it's been a real benefit because you've yeah. got to spend some quality time with your daughter. Um, how did it feel for you? And how do you think it felt for her being able to spend that time together? Did it we talk about mother's guilt quite a lot. Did it alleviate some of that for you or am I putting words into your mouth? Do you know what, for me, I, mother's guilt is not something that I've had to deal with too much of because I made choices that meant I was able to spend time with my daughter. So I chose to um, somewhat limit my career, which is unfair, um, in terms of I, I worked for the civil service for most of her childhood um, and I didn't go for promotions and stuff like that because I wanted to be able to take her to school, pick her up, be at school events, sports days, all that kind of stuff. So I don't think I have as much of that mother's guilt as some women do have because I was able to balance my career and raising my daughter, albeit that it meant I put some limitations on my career. But that was my choice. Um, and so for me, spending that time with her was just a bonus because we're pretty close because we've, we've always spent that good time together. So I haven't, I, I don't think I've had that guilt, but... I've coached many women who have, um, and we've ha I'm constantly having this debate with people about whether we can have it all in inverted commas. Um, and I'm not sure that we can, I think we can have a career, um, and raise children, but it may be that we have to place limits on it if we want to be the kind of mothers that are able to spend all of that time with our kids. So we have to make a decision. I think it's just, mm. choices. you decide what kind of mother you want to be and then what your career is going to do that will allow you to be that kind of mother or you decide what kind of career you're going to have and then let that influence what kind of mother you're going to be. But in terms of being able to be there for all of your kids' events and have a really full-on career, that's a lot. And I think some women do do it, um, but I think that comes at a cost, which is unfortunate. What do you think that cost is? Uh, if you're going to do both really, really well, burnout, stress, yeah. um, health complications, because it's, you know, even though I've, I, I said I, I kind of managed to find a balance for me, there were still times where I would be in work thinking, I wish I could be there. And that stress, mm. being kind of two people in your head and being two places at once is a really fine line and it's a really tough balancing act. So I can't imagine what doing that consistently through all the formative years of your child's childhood and running a business or being a successful CEO or whatever that would be really hard. And I think that takes mm. a mental toll, which catches up on you at some point. Yeah, that's really interesting. Really interesting because I left I left my career um, in education and it was always because I was disillusioned with what was going on in the education system. 
And at the time, my son was going through a really difficult time at his school. And a lot of people said to me, oh, you know, it's a really great thing that you're doing. You're going to be able to spend more time with your son. And, you know, that but that's not why I was doing it. And it wasn't until afterwards that I felt really guilty that that hadn't been my actual intention in leaving that role. And that it was actually a really nice byproduct of, of what happened. I'm now able to take him to school and I manage my own diary. So the type of mother that we are, you know, I've always been very career driven yeah. and that guilt is so huge. You know, I know I felt it. You said that you you compromised on the career yeah. growth um, and, and that, that talk about are you able to have it all is, is a really interesting question because in today's day and age, you think we, we could, we could have it all but we can't. <laughs> really, it's a really difficult one. And I think that I, I don't think anyone needs to feel guilty. I think we have to make choices. And I think once you make a conscious choice about what you're going to do in terms of motherhood and career, then the guilt dissipates somewhat because, you, because you've made a choice and you're doing what you want to do and you're doing what's best for you and your family. But I think where the guilt comes from is that we buy into society's idea of what we should be doing and what having it all means and then we, we, we find we can't cope and then something has to drop off and that's when you start feeling guilty. You feel guilty if you're not fulfilling your own personal goals and ambitions. You feel guilty if you are, but that's because the standards that you're measuring yourself against is not realistic and it's somebody else's. So for me, what I do and what I advise my clients to do is set your own standard. Decide what good looks like for you. Decide what's going to work for you and your family. And once you've done that, then there's, there's no need to feel guilty because you're doing exactly what is right for you. But it's, it's, it, it's, it's mm. and there are some choices to be made. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a qualified barrister and I chose not to practice during my daughter's formative years because to be a barrister means you're working, you're self-employed and you're having to take all kinds of cases and work all kinds of hours, which means that you're not going to be at home. And so I chose not to practice while she was, while she was a kid because that wasn't going to work for me because for me, motherhood was more important. So. You mentioned being a qualified barrister, and that's interesting. I work with a few legal firms, and a lot of women are leaving law. Um, more women than men qualify, mm-hmm. and lots of women are leaving the profession. So you are that statistic. You are within that statistic, which is very sad. What? Do you think you'll ever go back to the legal profession? Um, I, I'm someone who never says never, so I mm-hmm. might. Um, but for now, I, I feel like I'm doing more of what I wanted to do and why I got into the law in terms of doing my diversity and inclusion work. So for now, the answer is no, but you know, that qualification is not going anywhere. So if I decide to, then I can, which is always good. Again, it's about having choices, right? I have that choice. I've got so many questions that I want to (laughs) ask. Um, you mentioned the, the standards that we're living to. And that we're comparing ourselves against. And I love that you speak with your clients about setting their own standards and the societal norms. Whose standards do you think we are expected to live by in this country? Uh, Put it bluntly, the white male patriarchy. That's it. Um, women Women are expected to uh, do certain things. And whilst we're no longer expected to stay at home chained to the proverbial kitchen sink, we are still expected to be the caregivers. We're still expected to be the ones that sacrifice if we have a sick parent or a child that needs care. 
we are still the ones who are expected to put our careers on hold to raise families. So we're, we're, we're following the patriarchal standard. It's not, it's not, a, if that were a standard set by a woman, then it'd be very different. But the, the standards mm. we're following at the moment are, are, are white male patriarchal standards, unfortunately. Yeah, and the work that you do in diversity and inclusion, which is um, work that is happening all over the world, and it's fantastic that we've got more dialogue about this happening than than ever before. Yeah. Um, do you think that there's hope in in that area? Do you think we're making progress? Um, I always have to believe there's hope, otherwise I'd give up doing this work. <laughs> um, I, I do it because I think there is hope. Uh, are we making progress Yes, but really slowly, really mm. slow, too slowly for my liking. Um, and I think the past year after the murder of George Floyd, we were all really enthusiastic and thought there was going to be lots of change happening at a fast pace. But actually it's turned out that a lot of that change that was promised was lip service. Um, but alongside that, there has been a lot of progress. And so there's a lot of good things happening, but we're still not progressing fast enough in the area of race. And I say that because diversity and inclusion isn't just about race. It's about gender. It's about, Mm -hmm. you know, sexuality. It's about religion. It's about socioeconomic status. There's so many things that it's about. And we're making progress in those different areas at different paces. And I think that race is probably the slowest, um, closely followed by socioeconomic uh, status. And so in those areas, we're we're, we're not making progress at a fast enough rate. Um, And and I think that that's that's an Mm -hmm. issue. Uh, but we are dealing with it and, and, and I am hopeful. Yeah, that's great. I mean, ableism as well, that's a that's a massive area um, that that I think is so underfunded and so under-supported. And, uh, you know, the umbrella of diversity and inclusion, you're so right. We see, don't we, in organisations where we've got more diversity of thought and people that those organisations are making more profit and progress and that staff are purportedly happier. Yeah. Um, why do you think that is? Because people feel like it's a place where they where they belong, where they're valued. When you've got people who say, you know, I were, I, I, I'm a woman, um, I also happen to be a lesbian um, and I also happen to be black and I also happen to be disabled – but guess what? I don't feel like my opinion doesn't count. I don't feel like, um, you know, I'm not I'm not valued in this organisation. When those barriers are lifted and, and everybody's voice is heard and everyone's allowed to have a space and a voice and their difference is appreciated, people are far happier. And when people are happier, they perform better. And those organisations perform better because they're paying attention and they're doing something about embracing difference not tolerating difference, because there's a big difference in, in, in those two words. And I often hear, oh, you know, we're very tolerant of difference here. And for me, that's a, that's a no-no. To- when you tolerate something, it means you're putting up with. And difference shouldn't be put up with, difference should be embraced and celebrated. Because actually, the fact that you're different from me means we can have differing opinions and we can have rich and fruitful discussion and bring forth really great positive ideas. That can't happen if I feel like you're tolerating me. Because I'm, no, I'm never going to give my best to someone who's tolerating me. Amazing. Yes, absolutely. Tolerate. I'd never thought of that word before, but it's clearly got a pejorative lens to it. Very yeah. interesting. Um, Mavel, I want to ask you this question. As a, as a black woman, do you feel valued 
in society? Not as much as I should. Um, there are places that I feel valued. Um, and that's because I put myself in the right places, right? So I've been doing this work long enough that I know um, where people are embracing and celebrating difference. I know who are the people that, that love me for who I am. So I'm, you know, I'm 52 years old, so I've been at this a long time. So I now I'm, I'm very familiar with the places that I feel like I belong and I'm welcomed and the places that I'm not, I stay away from. But um, in general, absolutely not. You know, black women are, uh, in terms of gender pay gap, we're paid less than men and white women. Yeah. Um, and we're paid, so we're paid less than black women, uh, sorry, black men and white men and then white women. So we're the lowest paid. And when we talk about gender pay gaps in the workplace, employers don't address the difference in the pay gaps between white women and black women. And that's why employers are not seeing their gender pay gaps close fast enough because they're addressing a small element of the problem instead of the entire problem. Um, so no, it's hard to feel appreciated when I, when I'm, I know that I'm being paid less than I'm worth compared to my, you know, my peers in the workplace. Um, it's hard to feel valued when, you know, my children are still being told at school that their hair is, is a distraction. The hair as it grows out of their head in its natural form is somehow not good enough. And, you know, children are being told to cut their hair or to braid it or to straighten it because in its natural form and the way it grows out of its head, which is something I can't control, I'm told it's unprofessional. I'm told my children are told it's a distraction. It's hard to feel appreciated when those are the things that are, that are being hurled at you on a daily basis. And that's, and that's only a few of the things. So, so in general, no, no, definitely not. That makes me incredibly sad. Me too. I mean, that just, that really makes me very, very sad. And, you know, having, I'm quite emotional actually right now. So having worked in education and knowing what it's like to be um, different. Uh, so I'm, I'm half German. I was called a Nazi for years. You know, I had rubbish thrown at me. And that's without a visible difference. That's just with a label of difference. Mm. To, to live that life with difference that is visible. And it's, there's, it's not different. I mean, I'm different to you. You know, we've had, we've had, I, I, I could, I'm going to ramble, but I just feel very emotional about the fact that young people might feel that they don't fit in simply because their hair grows a certain way. I mean, that just, that tells you everything, doesn't it? It really does tell you everything. So, uh, yeah, I, I feel terribly sad about that. But in terms of bringing hope to the conversation, the fact that you and I are able to talk about this and that it can go to a wider audience who can hear the challenges that, that young black people face in the English education system means that we are making some form of progress. Absolutely. But what else can happen? What else can we be doing to improve the standards of our young black people's lives? You know what? For me, it, it starts and, and almost ends with doing what we're doing now. It's having conversation. Mm. Um, and doing the work I do, I'm always hearing. You know, we, we, we want to have the conversation about race, but it's so difficult. And if we keep labelling it a difficult conversation, we're always going to mm. run away from it. And if we keep running away from the conversation, then how are we going to make any progress? 
Because in order to make progress for our children, particularly because they are the future, as corny as that sounds, that line, whenever I say that line, it always sounds corny. It reminds me of the song. But because our children are, are the future, in order to make difference for them, we have to be able to move past feeling like talking about our differences is difficult. Because the only way that, you know, you as a teacher or you as an employer is going to not be afraid of my hair and how it grows out of its head is if we have a conversation about our hair and its differences and why it's different. Or, or we talk about our culture and why, you know, you, you might say, oh, black people are very loud. Um, yeah, we might be. Um, some of us are in, in the same way that, you know, I have Italian friends who are always also accused of being loud because we gesticulate and we are quite enthusiastic but those are cultural differences which is, are, are to be celebrated. We can have a conversation about that and discuss why it is you might be, you might be loud. Um, one reason I heard recently, which is so true, is that you know, we tend to be from larger families. And so as a child, when you're a member of a really large family, often you have to, be shout, you have to shout to be heard. And so if everyone feels they have to, be sh- to shout to be heard, we're all talking at quite a volume which becomes normal in your household. <laughs> then when you go outside and you talk quite loud, you're not aware that you're talking loud. You're just being who you are at home. And if you gesticulate a lot, then that's who you are. Um, but it's, it's, it's difficult when there is no understanding of that, which is why you get things like, you know, we're seeing in America now, I, I know with my family, they're telling young black men in, in, in my family, if a policeman stops, you keep your hands still. Because any sudden movement may, may, may cost you your life. And whereas if a police officer understands that in a particular culture, we often gesticulate, right? You're not necessarily going to be as quick to, to jump to pulling your gun because you feel like a, a hand gesture means that you're going to get killed yourself. So we need to start having conversations, mm-hmm. normalizing conversations around racial differences and cultural differences so that you have an understanding of me. I have an understanding of you because when we have that understanding, the fear dissipates, right? And a lot of a lot of what we mm. see in terms of racism, sexism, ableism, all of these isms comes from fear and a lack of understanding. So for me, the most important thing is mm. having those conversations. But it's also about learning. You know, pick up a book, understand a different culture, understand what it's like to read a book on feminism, understand what it's like to be a woman in a man's world. So that when you have that understanding you can be a bit more sympathetic, you can be a bit more empathetic, you can be a bit more understanding, and you can create spaces as an ally to make sure that I, as a woman, can enter that space and have a voice because you understand what it's like to be me a bit more. So it's about having those conversations, educating yourself, and then implementing what you learn because there's no point in, in having these conversations and learning things and then not implementing what you learn, which is, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people feel like they can't implement because they're afraid to do so. So you have a lot of bystanders to um, very bad behaviour and inappropriate behaviour that people don't challenge because there's a fear around that. So, so it, it's important that there's those three things. It's talking and it's learning and then it's implementation. We have to do all three of those things in order to make real meaningful change. Mm. The, the education conversation there around like adult education around conversation and having open conversations is a really important topic because you know, as a society of of Brits, it's not very proper. Um, if you consider the Victorian, the Victorian, you know, way of living, which has actually formed a lot of our society, a modern day society is is formed by a Victorian England. And in Victorian England, if you were to 
um, not be proper in how you respected. I mean, obviously, there was a lot of disrespect in other ways, but yeah. alluding to and mentioning difference and, and that being, again, a negative thing rather than a positive aspect of who we are as people. And that's ingrained in our society, in our culture, to not offend for fear of offence. And something that really drew me to you, um, so we met, and Mavel and I met on a, on a new audio app on Clubhouse. Um, some of you will be aware of it, some of you might not. Um, and and I, was, I was really drawn to Mavel's incredibly open attitude to saying, ask the questions please ask the questions. And I was in a room with with all black women talking about being black and being a female. And I think I was the only white woman wow. on the panel. And um, I'm not going to lie, it scared me. It scared the shit out of me because I was worried that I was going to say something wrong. And that was the fear element of my head that was kicking in. And what I did is something that we practice in, in coaching and was I, I moved into my heart space and I spoke from my heart and I reminded myself that I'm a good person and I care. And Mavelle is saying to me, ask the questions. I'm not going to judge you for the questions that you've got. And I so appreciated that, Mavelle. And it enabled me to, to actually ask. But it is my responsibility to go and understand more, not from you, not from um, other black folks, from people who have, um, you know, I need to educate myself, I need to read, I need to not be relying on you to educate me. So all of these fear things were going on in my head. And you were just absolutely incredible. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart for for allowing that space to happen, Lavelle, because it was, it was amazing. And so you're clearly passionate about that, about being able to talk about difference. Yep. What else are you passionate about? Um, well, I, I have a passion for, for the law, which is why I, sp- I studied to be a barrister. Um, and for me, you know, inclusion kind of fits neatly in that space because there's lots of legislation around what we should and shouldn't be doing. Um, I, I don't think we, need to, we should rely on legislation to do the right thing. I think, as you've just said, if you're a good person and you want to do the right thing, you should just do it anyway. And it's, 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 it's really imperative that we do open the spaces to have conversations. Um, and just touching on that, what I want people to understand is talking about race and making a mistake shouldn't be any different to talking about anything else and making a mistake. And if, if you're talking about being a woman um, and, making, and, and, and a man makes a mistake, he doesn't, well, he may, but I think he finds it easier to go, oh, my God, I'm so sorry, and then carry on. And I'm, I'm not sure yet why we, we're still not in that space we're talking about race or even ableism because, you know, I, I had a disabled sister who passed away and, and people didn't want to talk about her disability either with her. They'd rather talk to me about it standing next to her than talk to her about it because they were afraid of making a mistake. And I, I, what my thing is, is just make a mistake and apologize and then move on. If, if, I've, if you've said something in, and, and I've said, well, actually, no, that's not quite correct and that might be a little bit offensive your response might be to say, okay, well, okay, what's offensive about it? I'm really sorry. I didn't know what's offensive. I can tell you what's offensive. You can say, my bad. I'm really sorry. I won't do that. I won't make that mistake again. Then you move on to another conversation. So it really is as simple as that. You say, you make a mistake, you say, sorry, you move on. Just like you would with any other topic of conversation. When we get to that stage, 
then we'll have conversations all over the place and we'll start to see progress happen a bit more quickly. Uh, but in terms of the <laughs> it sounds easy. It, and it really is. And and this is this is what I try to tell my clients when I'm doing consultancy work. This is really not hard. We overcomplicate it. Um, and I'm, and I'm, that's not to say that some of these conversations are not quite intense and are not going to 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 be um, emotional. Because as as a black woman, um, I have suffered racial trauma. I have, right? And, and whether that's a, a, as a result of direct racism or some of the more indirect things of microaggressions and just being who I am in society, I have suffered racial trauma. So it will be you know, tricky and emotional for me to talk about that sometimes, right? And as a white person, I'm, I'm very well aware that there may be some guilt attached to that, even though it's not your guilt to have. If your ancestors owned slaves, that's not, you didn't. You, Lucy N, did not own a slave, so you don't need to feel guilty about that. But I do understand that for some people, there may be some of that residual guilt in the same way that I have racial trauma that may stem back from, from my ancestors. There'll be trauma assigned to a white person in the same sense. And so I understand that. And so we may be having emotional conversations, but that doesn't mean they have to be difficult, right? We just have to be understanding of each other. We have to be understanding of each other's boundaries. And we also have to be willing to make mistakes and apologize for them and move on. And that's on both parts, right? So it, it, it can make it easier if we do that. So it, it is easy for me. It is about having a conversation once we start doing that and take away that difficult label, we'll, we'll do it a bit more often. But the question you asked me was, what else am I passionate about apart from inclusion, which I could talk about forever and ever and ever? Um, I, I'm a strengths-based coach, so I'm really passionate about people tapping into what they're good at and what their strengths are. Because we spend a lot of time in society, especially in the professional development space, talking about what we're not good at. How can we improve this thing that we're not good at? And I'm not saying that doesn't have a place, but actually, if we spend far more time, far more of that balance focusing on what we're actually good at and how we can get better at it and how we can use it to our advantage, A, we're happier, B, we have more confidence and C, we're far more productive, which is why I started doing strengths-based coaching and, and, and became accredited in, in that space because I found that um, for myself, when I was able to identify what my strengths are, it really helped me in terms of my career and where I wanted to focus because there, there is no point in me saying I'm going to spend all of my time focusing in areas that I'm quite weak at and constantly feeling like I'm weak, which makes my self-esteem dip because I'm like, oh, well, I can't necessarily do that. And I'm, uh, there may be some things that we're never going to be good at, try as we might, as we might. And so if I keep on pushing on those doors, trying to build skills that I'm, I'm, I may never be good at, then I'm, of course I'm always going to be in a space of, oh, I'm not good enough. Whereas if I'm spending far more time in the space of, I'm great at that, so let me do more of that, I'm going to feel good. And the more I feel good, the better my performance is, the better able I am as a coach to help other people, the better able I am as a mother I am to help my daughter, as opposed to focusing on, eh, I'm not so great at that and I'm going to keep on and on and on and on at it. Now, I'm not saying don't work on the things you're not good at. I'm just saying the balance needs to shift and focus more on what we are good at and our strengths and a little bit less on what we're bad at, especially in schools. I'm really keen for that to happen at a young age. Um, I, I did some workshops in, in some schools with kids who were deemed the bad kids. Um, and within one hour of being in the room with me doing some work on strengths, the teacher came and said to me, that child is really bad usually, and I've never seen them so captivated. Because I was talking to them about what they were good at. And for once, I could see that child feel like she was, she was great and she was a good girl. 
and and she was really really happy she said to me she was the first person to put her hand up at the end and go are you coming back next week miss we please want you to come back next week and I wasn't but it really made me feel good to see that she was so happy and to have her teacher see that she could behave if only she was given the opportunity to focus on what she was good at instead of constantly trying to fit a square peg into a round hole because not every child is academic if we stop doing that and have our children focus on what they're good at a bit more then they'll have far higher self-esteem and I think we'll see a lot less problems um, in the world with some of our young Mm. people. So that's my other passion. I love it. Um, It's a tragedy, isn't it? It's a real tragedy that kids are labelled good and bad. There's that real washing of you are a good boy or a good girl and that kid is bad, like that kid Mm -hmm. is naughty, as if that one label then defines you for, for... everything that you do because they can't sit still in their chair you know they're naughty or you're a bad child when actually that person might be incredible when it comes to planting seeds and helping plants grow or uh, teamwork in sports or whatever it might be and um I'm very passionate about this subject and we would probably be here for about seven hours (laughs) to talk about it I want to come back to your strengths though because this is something that I'm passionate about something that I coach on a lot um, Yale University have got a really um, awesome strengths-based survey that you can do where you can find out what your strengths are. Um, we might link that in the show notes, actually. But, Mavelle, what would you say your strengths are? Um, so listening, uh, making connections. I'm a very uh, I'm very much a people person, so I'm, I'm very heart-centred and everything I do comes from that space of love which will keep me going during doing diversity and inclusion work. If it wasn't for that, I probably couldn't keep going. Um, <laughs> I am I'm, I'm definitely someone who's quite empathetic, so I'm really good at being able to empathise with people. I'm very good at being able to see um, a problem and find solutions quite quickly. Uh, because I'm very, very passionate, and this is how I raise my daughter all the time. I talk to her about it all the time. In being able to step up, step back from the problem, so you can see the solution. Whereas we spend a lot of time focusing on the problem, and and it's you know, it's it's the it's the, the natural reaction, right? If we're if we're in a space and something happens and it's and it's a problem, we can get quite down on it and we can be upset, and we tend to spend a lot of time in that space. But I'm really passionate that people kind of pull back from that. Yes, there's the problem. But okay, give myself some distance so I can start to think of the solution. And that's that's one of my strengths. Um, then the other is, is, is I'm quite positive. I'm, I'm definitely a glass half full kind of girl as opposed to a glass half empty kind of girl. And I, I could go on and on and on um, and give you my... my uh, I'm, I use um, a tool called Clifton Strengths Finder and we identify your 32 strengths. So I could give you all 32 of mine, but we'd be here all day. So <laughs> I've just given you a few of mine. Yeah, it's so refreshing because... When I ask people what their strengths are, especially women, find it incredibly difficult to talk about their strengths. And actually, it's only because I've done that Yale survey where somebody else has told me, these are your strengths, X, Y, and Z, that I feel confident in talking about that. I think if it had to come from me personally, I would really struggle. That kind of self-effacing, I don't want to be like to I don't want to be blowing my trumpet and what you just did I asked you the question there was no hesitation in your strengths you knew it and that's just so refreshing honestly speaking with you Mabel is like drinking a glass of water it's like on a really 
hot day. It's just absolutely amazing. I love it. I love oh, it. See, I'm going to add that to my strengths. I'm a thirst quencher. <laughs> you are a thirst quencher. You absolutely are. And we need more of you in the world. Oh, thank um, you. Okay, so it would be remiss of me not to come back to the difficult conversations. Yeah. Um, because I was thinking a lot of things as you were talking about that. And actually, I think culturally speaking, we are so quick to point the finger, um, especially when it when it comes to, let's say, middle-aged white men yep. who um, might say something wrong. Let's say they're in very senior positions and they've said something publicly and they, they lose their job. And it's through naivety, through, through lack of learning, etc. Now, if that person then goes, do you know what? I'm sorry, I need to learn more about this. Are they forgiven? Is that is that a forgiven thing? And, and then we carry on? Or are we annoyed that they didn't know that already? See, it really depends on the severity of what they've said and the timing of the apology. Because I think a lot of what we see at the moment is a, a lack of forgiveness because the apology seems disingenuous, the timing of it. So if... if if we're having a conversation or a senior leader is, is in, a, in a meeting and they say something that's inappropriate um, and somebody calls them out on it there and then and they put their hands up and say, oh, my God, I'm really sorry. I, I, didn't, I genuinely didn't know that that was an issue. I'm really sorry I won't happen, it won't happen again and I'll go away and do some learning about it. Then it's really hard to not forgive that, right? But if you say something that's incorrect and inappropriate, no one calls you on it. A week passes by, then somebody hears that you said it and it appears in the media and then someone tells you. And then a further week passes before your spin doctors or your PR people issue an apology on your behalf. Who cares about that? No one's going to care about that apology. And this is what we're seeing at the moment. A lot of people are saying things and not apologizing. And then they're told to apologize because it's going to make them look good. It's going to save their company money. They're going to save face. Then an apology comes. And me personally, I, I, I sit back and go, not interested in that apology because it's not genuine. If it were genuine, it would come immediately from you. And, and when I say from you, I mean from you, the individual who said it, without being told to say it by a PR person. And so that's where we see this disconnect between um, an apology and forgiveness. And that's why, why people start talking about cancel culture. And unfortunately, what that then does is people say things like, well, there's no point in me apologizing because I'm never going to be forgiven. Right. And it's not about not apologizing to be forgiven. It's about wh why are you saying sorry? Do you know what you're saying sorry for? Do you genuinely mean it? And is that apology coming from you or is it coming from some spin doctor or PR person in your firm? And I, people don't have time or patience for an apology that's not genuine. And I think that's I think that's where the problem lies, is the fact that if you make a mistake, you have to own it and you have to own it immediately. And then you have to do something about it as opposed to waiting to be told this is the right thing. You, you better do this because otherwise you'll be cancelled. That no, that's not. That's not what, what what I do my work for as a black woman. That's not what I want to hear. If somebody has, you know, if if somebody, let's think about it. If somebody commits a sexual assault and doesn't say sorry for it immediately, as we've been seeing now with the Me Too movement, and then we're getting lots of sorries. No one expects those women to forgive those men. There's not an expectation of that because there was no apology that was forthcoming at the time of that action. 
right? But now, you know, being because of the movement, people are being brought to the forefront. So those apologies mean nothing, right? Because we know that you try to hide your actions for such a long time. And no one's expecting those women to forgive that. Yet if we're having that conversation about race and then a mistake is made and it's the same kind of scenario, if I don't forgive, then I'm being seen as the, the, the barrier to progression because I won't forgive. So therefore, I'm allowing people to sit there and go, well, oh, why should I apologise? Because I'm never going to be forgiven. And, and we need to stop this double standard of having expectations about one thing that we don't have about other things. Because and, and this is where I, I see issues in the inclusion space of there almost being the oppression Olympics with people saying, well, well, actually, my ism and my discrimination is worse than yours because of this, this whole ethos around what is forgiven and what isn't and what the standard is and expectation is around one area as opposed to another. Oppression is oppression. As far as I'm concerned, if one of us is not okay, whether that's a gay man or a disabled woman, if you're not okay, then I'm not going to be okay as a black person. Because discrimination is discrimination and all of it needs to be eradicated. So we need to stop pitting people against each other by having different expectations of what's acceptable and what isn't. We need to start saying as organisations, a blanket, discrimination of any kind will not be tolerated. It's not, we're not going to tolerate a little bit of a banter about you know, females, but we're, we're going to say no, to, we're anti-racist. That's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's not going to work because intersectionality for, for, for one thing, because I'm a black woman. So if someone says something to me that's inappropriate as a woman, but, but it wasn't an, a racist thing, does that mean I hurt less? No, it doesn't. So from that perspective, we have, in, we have these intersections. So it's never going to work from that perspective. But take intersectionality off the table. It's not going to work if we don't stamp out all forms of discrimination because it's wrong, period. So that's that's the issue. I think we need to stop these different standards of what's acceptable and what isn't. It's all wrong. We need to just get rid of all of it. So your daughter, you mentioned she's gone off to university. Yep, um, it's been a very difficult, yeah, difficult few years for students, um, especially, I think, um, and for the elderly. I, I believe it's been quite a lonely experience. Um, do you feel good about what she's going off to do? Are you are you excited about her future? I, I, will, I will always feel good about what she's going off to do as long as she's doing what she wants to do. Mm. Um which she is. At one point, she decided she didn't want to go to university. And I had no problem with that. But everyone around me did. <laughs> there were friends who were saying, Oh, my God, why are you not upset? Because she's doing what she wants to do with her life. And I'm, I'm never going to be upset by that. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit disheartened as she is because her first year experience has not been great because of the pandemic. Um, so I'm hopeful that her second year will be better than the first. Um, in terms of her future, I'm excited that she gets to do what she wants, but I'm also a little bit apprehensive because she is a black woman. And and, and I, I hope mm. that the work that I do will have progressed enough by the time she's able to start her career that she doesn't have to encounter some of the things that I've had to encounter. Um, if if that's the case, then I will have done my job because my, my ambition is to, to not have a job anymore and to have inclusion be part of the fabric of every organisation in the same way that whatever your core business is, whether that be making widgets or advertising, that inclusion become part of that core business and embedded so that I'm not needed anymore. Um, and so, you know, if that happens in time for her to be able to have a fruitful career where she doesn't have to worry about being the only woman in the room, as I did in, in many jobs, or being the only black person in the room, as I have done in many jobs, 
Um, if she gets to to, to, to to have the choices that she wants to have and be treated fairly, I'll be super excited. But I do have hope. So I am, I, I am excited for her future just because she's young, right? And um, the world is a different place than when I grew up and it's a little more exciting place. There's much more options. So I'm, I'm hoping that she gets to fulfill everything that she wants to do in terms of her choices in her career. So I am. Mm-hmm. And so let's imagine then as we as we bring this recording to a close, and I've absolutely loved this conversation as I knew I would, Mavel. I really I'm really grateful to you for speaking so openly and honestly and taking the time to to share your experience with me. Let's imagine that your job is done. Let's imagine that we are all open and we have let go of our historic beliefs and we are inclusive yeah what do you do then I then continue my coaching work um Mm -hmm. because I I I love that and people are always gonna need to know what they're good at and um build that confidence I I would anticipate doing it more with young people um right now I I spend most of my coaching um I spend most of my time doing strength coaching with women uh particularly women who are returning to work but I really want to spend more time doing it with young people so they can really start harnessing that sooner rather than later. So if, if I'm not doing inclusion work, that, that's what I'll be doing alongside doing some traveling and doing things that I love to do. Spending more time doing things like art, which I love, um, but I'm busy at the moment, so I don't get to do that much. Amazing. Uh, Mavelle, you are extraordinary. Thank you so oh. much for being here. Um, I'm wishing you a very happy summer and um, yeah I hope that everyone has enjoyed this thank you Mavelle for joining me any last words Uh, no just thank you for creating a space where I can be open and honest and talk about things like race and it not be a difficult conversation right I think that something like this conversation is the example right You're, you're a white woman I'm a black woman and we have gender in common but we also have differences and we haven't allowed that to stop us from having a really good conversation that's open and honest. Um, So I thank you for creating that space. And I hope that anyone watching and listening to this has been able to see that it's not hard and takes that as an example and goes ahead and does more of what we've just done. So thank you Mm -hmm. for for being here and, and creating this space. I love it. And um, your dog clearly has a lot of things to say about this. Oh, we've managed to get to about 45 minutes without her without her making noise. So um, <laughs> her limit. <laughs> I absolutely love it. Uh, okay, where can we find you, Mavelle? Where can we seek you out? So you can find me on my website, which is modaspd.com. So it's modus, M-O-D-A-S-P-D.com. You can find me on Instagram. I am modus45. You can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm, again, I'm modus45 on Twitter. Um, and you can just see me on Clubhouse. I have a couple of rooms on Clubhouse um, doing different things. So, yeah, you can find me on all those platforms. What an inspiration Movelle is. She filled me up with joy. I loved the nature of our conversation, and we could talk about 
diversity, inclusion, about being female, about being mothers. We could talk about this stuff for hours and hours. So I hope that we condensed for you our conversation in a bite-sized chunk that was good for you to go away with, with some inspiration of your own. I thank Mavel from the bottom of my heart for joining me on That's What She Said and can't wait to see you for another episode next week. Take care. Thank you for joining us on another episode of That's What She Said. This is a phenomenal collective of female voices from around the world. And I'm sharing that to empower women to share our stories so that you know that you are not alone. I'm a woman who's gone through it all. Honestly, there is nothing you can tell me that I haven't heard before, either with my clients or through my own life journey. And we need to stop hiding behind a veneer of perfection. These stories are important and we need to share them loudly and proudly. And that's what we're doing on this series of That's What She Said. Thank you for joining us. I have been your host, Lucienne Shakir, and it has been an absolute pleasure to spend my time with these phenomenal women.